to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. We need more of Jesus to come into our society. We need for ourselves as Christians to more effectively be salt and light and reflect Jesus in society. You know, um, I put up a, a few pictures there. If you can just bring them up on the screen. Um, you know, there are lots of, there's a lot of talk about revolution. You know, a lot of protests going on. I mean, apart from the literally thousands of service delivery protests per year that we have, uh, now we have the student protest, fees must fall uh, protest. Um, you see a few pictures there. At the top, on your right-hand side, you see the revolution is here. And there's a lot of talk about revolution, isn't there? I mean, there's always been a lot of talk about revolution. If you think about the ANC, you think about words like National Democratic Revolution, um, which has been coming on for years, uh, which has been talked about for years. You, you hear guys like the EFF talking about economic revolution, you know, and, and that, that's where their name comes from, economic freedom fighters. Um, you think about the students uh, and the fees must fall revolution. And, you know, you wonder, what does Jesus think of all of this? Because, let's be honest, to some extent, all of us long for revolution in some form or another. If you think about revolution as turning the system upside down, overthrowing the current system and bringing in a new system, we all see problems in the system, don't we? We certainly do. There's a lot of problems in the system. So in a, there's a sense in which all of us have this yearning for some form of revolution. But is the ANC's National Democratic Revolution or the EFF's Economic Revolution or the Students' Fees Must Fall Revolution, is, is that the answer? Is that the kind of revolution we need? Uh, what does Jesus say? Does Jesus believe in revolution? Was Jesus a revolutionary? Was he? I'm not going to ask you to vote. <laughs> the reality is, we've been talking in the last couple of weeks quite a bit about the fact that you know I have to live everywhere as though God sent me there. But that means that I must be politically engaged as well. Even in the public square, in the political arena, I must be able to live there as though God sent me. How does that look? How do I engage politically in what's going on at the moment? How do, how do I engage with talk of revolution that's in the air? How do we engage as Christians with that? How would Jesus have engaged with that? What would he have had to say to all of this? So I'm going to just take a scripture. And I, obviously, you know, um, I won't be able to cover everything in terms of how Jesus, what Jesus would say in terms of us engaging politically. But I do think Mark 12, verse 13 to 17 gives us, uh, Mark was uh, a disciple of Peter, um, who was an eyewitness of Jesus, and um, Peter really expected revolution, like we, like we heard. He really expected Jesus is going to come and he's going to revolutionize things, and he's going to overthrow the, the Roman system. 
and set the Jews free. So, and and he, he had his sword there in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. And when, you know, people attacked Jesus, he cut off someone's ear. Because, I mean, he would have fit, fitted in quite nicely in the Fees Must Fall stuff. I mean, he would have been probably throwing rocks as well, you know, initially. <laughs> because, I mean, that's the kind of revolution he wanted, you know. And it's, you know, Mark writes down his eyewitness testimony, you know. And, and it's this guy, this, this sort of guy was not averse to violence, you know, a very passionate guy whose testimony we have about how Jesus engaged politically with the people of his time. And it says in Mark 12, verse 13 to 17, and they sent, and you've got to ask yourself, who's the they? Because in our politics, there's also quite a few they's, you know. They are doing this, you know. And, and, and you never quite know who's the they. <laughs> and they sent to him, to Jesus, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, to trap him in his, in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know you are, a tr- you are true, or you are, you are a man of integrity, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay, should we pay them or should we not? And the thing goes on, but... Knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why put me to the test? Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. Now, you know, some of these scriptures are so um, well known that we read them and we don't really get what they're saying because we know them too well. We don't really understand what they're saying. I mean, what, what, what Jesus is saying here, I mean, there's a reason why at the end they marvel at his answer. I mean, we, we read it and it's like, yeah, sure, we don't marvel because we don't quite get what the original audience got out of it. And I'm hoping that, that God will open our eyes and our hearts this morning that we will actually see of something of what they saw in it. <clears throat> First, I'm just, I'm just going to have three points, and I'm going to give you my points up front. Jesus started a revolution. His opponents questioned the revolution. And Jesus revolutionized revolution. It changed the very nature of revolution itself. So we're going we're gonna to look at that, at those three points. So, so firstly, just notice that there are some similarities between Jesus' situation in the scripture, as recorded in the scripture, and our situation today. It says, and they sent certain people. You know, I, I don't think it's, it's, it's a big secret that a lot of people involved in the protests have been sent Probably by different political parties. You know, I'm sure there are provocateurs. I'm sure there are people, you know, sort of behind the scenes, you know, working things up. I mean, it, I think it's quite obvious to everyone. There are people who have been sent to stir up. Okay? I'm not saying everyone who's involved in the, you know, in, in the protest have been stirred up. I think people, you know, really engage, people, people really connect with a lot of the injustice trying to be addressed and the inequalities trying to be addressed through the protests. 
So, and, and there are real injustices and real inequalities that do need to be addressed. And the problem is they haven't been addressed for more than two decades now in the new South Africa. And, you know, to some extent I can understand the frustration. I can understand. I can relate with the anger. You know, we, we made, all these promises were made. Things were supposed to be better, but things aren't better. What's going on? You know? There really are problems. And, and, and you know... We see in Jesus' ministry that he was the first one to address the problems and confront the problems. He didn't just sweep them under the rug. And, and we're going to see in his answer, he doesn't do that either. So, so people are sent, you know. Just like they were sent to Jesus, people are often sent by different political parties and entities and who knows what, you know, into all these situations to come and stir things up. And these guys are sent probably by the Sanhedrin, the, 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 the rulers of of Israel at the time, the, the ruling council of Israel at the time, who were very threatened by Jesus. They were sent you know, to go and test Jesus, to try and trap him in his words. Um, and then also notice another thing that, that's similar to me. I mean, if, if you look here, you have the Pharisees and the Herodians coming, being sent. Now, who are the Pharisees and the Herodians? The Pharisees were this group of very nationalistic Jews who said, no king except God. They were at the forefront of wanting the Romans thrown out and Caesar's rule obliterated. You know? They wanted revolution. They weren't quite as violent as the zealots. The zealots were these guys who walked around with long knives, you know, and their motto was the only good Roman is a dead Roman. You know, and they would would literally in the marketplace walk up to a guy and, you know, stick the dagger between his ribs. You know, they were assassins, you know. So so they were a very violent bunch. Now, the, the Pharisees were similar in in philosophy and what they wanted to the zealots. They weren't quite as violent, though. So, so, and the Herodians were supporters of Herod, who was the Roman-appointed king of the area of Israel. So you have the Pharisees who want Rome out, and the Herodians who support Herod, the Roman-appointed governor and king. They are on totally opposite sides of the political spectrum. And here they're coming together because they have a common enemy. And I see a lot of that in our politics as well. It's a politics of opposition. It's a politics of, you know, I'm, a, I'm, I'm mostly against you, so I'm, willing, I'm against you too, but I'm willing to work with you because I'm more against him or them. Isn't that so? And, and, and it's, it, it, in, in many senses, it's, it's, it's a bit demoralizing to many voters and, and especially to many Christians because you look at the situation, you, you survey the political landscape and you see no one that you really fully agree with. I mean, even the better parties, I mean, it's like, and even the better politicians like, oh, you know. <laughs> it, it always feels, it's like in America, I mean, with the Democrats and the Republicans, you know, and, and, and Hillary, Hillary Clinton, Clinton and Donald Trump, you know. It's, it's like, I mean, which one of those will you choose as president? You know, it's like, why in politics does it always seem like you have to choose the lesser of two or three or more evils? Doesn't it always feel like that? Anyway, you know, so, you know, their situation was very similar to ours. So Jesus' opponents come to him and they try and set him up and um, with a question, with some flattery. And, and, and the flattery is very ironic. They say, we know that you are true. You, we know that you're a man of integrity. We know that you don't fear man and you don't 
you know, look at appearances, you know, and, and, and we know that you speak the, you know, the way of God according to the truth. You know, you're, you're, a, you, you're a straight talker, you know. In fact, what they're really saying to him you know, in, in just very flattering terms is, you know, you're a good revolutionary. Because that's what they want him to be. <laughs> you're a good revolutionary, you know. You're taking on the system. Yeah, man. <laughs> and they're flattering him, you know. And the irony, there are two massive ironies in what they say. The first piece of irony is everything they say about Jesus is true. (laughs) He really is a man of integrity. He really doesn't care about what people think primarily. He he really does teach the way of God according to the truth. So ironically, even though they're using it to flatter him, everything that they're flattering him with is true. That's the first irony. The second irony is even bigger. Someone for whom those things that they say are true won't fall for their flattery. <laughs> if Jesus really is such a person who doesn't care about what people say, why do they think, why do they even bother flattering him and think that he'll fall for their flattery? Can you see the irony there? You know, if their flattery is true, it's ineffective. <laughs> their flattery will only work if it's not true. But because their flattery is true, it doesn't work. Jesus doesn't care what they think. Jesus doesn't care for their flattery. He just cares what, primarily what God thinks and what God's word says. And just to give you a little uh, bit of background, in about 6 before Christ, um, in about 6 BC, just sort of around the time when Jesus was born, they instituted this tax being talked about. And the tax here that is being spoken about isn't like general tax. Because he asks for a denarius. There were different kinds of tax. There was tax on your goods. There was tax on your income. I mean, tax was quite high in those days. I mean, some people reckon that the taxes were more than 50%. You know, even up to, you know, it was, it was high, you know, in, in, in different places. And then you had the tax collectors. They didn't get an income, but any taxes they could raise above what was required, you know, that was the cream they could, that was their income. So they would manipulate and coerce and all that kind of stuff to get, pe- to get more money. They were heavily taxed, but the tax being spoken about here, you, see, you can see what kind of tax it was by the fact that he asked for denarius. Because there was a specific tax, which was an annual tax, annual head tax, instituted around 6 BC, um, which was a, sort of an a, a imperial poll tax, which you had to pay annually, just for the privilege of being ruled by Caesar. So you had to pay too specifically to Caesar because of the privilege of being under his rulership. So it, and the denarius was, was a day wage for, a, for just a, a normal wage. And so it wasn't a massive amount of money. But it wasn't the, the amount that was the problem in this. It was the principle. Because it was an annual reminder that, you know, you pay tribute to Caesar because you're under his rule. He rules you. He's your king. And a guy called Judas the Galilean started a rebellion when this tax was instituted. An armed revolt, a revolution. And he did three things. Firstly, he told Jews not to pay the tax. He abolished the tax. Then he went with his armed forces and, and, and violently cleansed the temple. And then he declared... That we are under no one's rule except God. He declared the rule of God, the kingdom of God. 
Can you draw some parallels here with the life and ministry of Jesus? What did Jesus start? You go and read in, in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. His very first message, the crux, the summary of his message was, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come. He's declaring the rule of God, just like Judas the Galilean. So you have Jesus the Galilean saying similar things that Judas the Galilean was saying about 35 years before. And then, just in the previous chapter, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus goes and what does he do? He makes a whip and he cleanses the temple. <laughs> forcefully. So now they're saying, listen here, you've, you're proclaiming the rule of God, you're proclaiming the kingdom of God, you've just cleansed the temple, there's just one of the three things left. Are you also going to oppose the, 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 the head tax? In other words, are you also going to read, lead an armed revolt like Judas the Galilean? Now, of course, what happened to Judas the Galilean was... The Romans came in with their superior forces. They overcame them, captured him, and executed him. And that's exactly what the Pharisees want to happen with Jesus. So they're thinking if he shows his true colors, if he declares himself as a revolutionary, then he's opposing Rome, and then Rome will come in and destroy him, and destroy his whole movement. And that's why they asked the question, so, uh, this Judas the Galilean, like I said, he, he, he opposed this, this head tax of one denarius. And, um, and um, he started, he was actually the guy who, you know, his revolt led to the starting of the Zealots. And the Zealots were eventually the guys who, in 66 to 70 AD, led to the destruction of Jerusalem. They were the guys at the forefront of that fight. They were revol- revolutionaries at the forefront of that fight. Now, so, they ask him this question. And it's a trick question. I mean, you can see it's a trick question. So they ask him, you know, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? Should we pay or shouldn't we? And they know they've got him between a rock and a hard place. Because if he says, no, don't pay the tax, then he's leading an armed revolt. He's revolting against the Roman system, and the Romans are going to come and crush him. Caesar's going to come down and destroy him, kill him. That's what the... Pharisees are hoping for. On the other hand, I mean, if he says, yes, pay the tax, I mean, then they're going to not believe his kingdom message. Because his kingdom message is a revolutionary message. It's a, it's a message of overthrowing the old system of rule and replacing it with a new system of rule, rule by God. And then the people who have been listening to him and following his disciples will not believe in him anymore. They'll say, no, you're just blowing a lot of smoke. You know, when push comes to shove, you don't really believe in your own message. Why should we follow you? Because, I mean, we think of, when we think of kingdom, we think the kingdom of God is within me, right? That's often what we think. Oh, heaven's in my heart, you know? And then we always think of that one scripture where Jesus says the kingdom of God is within you. But what we don't know is that's actually not what he's saying. Because if we go and check in context, it's in Luke 17, I think. can't remember all I can't remember exactly, maybe it was Luke 11. But he's talking to the Pharisees. And it, it does use the word in. When it says the kingdom of God is, it does use the word entos, which can be translated in. But he's, he's talking to the Pharisees, the guys who oppose him, the guys who don't believe in him. Why would he say the kingdom of God is in their hearts? The word in there can also be translated, if, if it's a group, if it's an individual, it can mean in your heart. If it's a group, it can mean in your midst. 
among you. So what he's really saying there is, you know, the kingdom of God is not going to come with your observation. You're not going to say, here it is or there it is. Because the kingdom of God is already in your midst. Why? Because I, the one who is filled with the Spirit, is already, I'm already in your midst. I, the anointed king, I'm already in your midst. So the kingdom's already here in your midst. There's no scripture in the, in the New Testament that says that the kingdom is in you. All the scripture says that you are in the kingdom. In other words, the kingdom is not just the internal private matter of my heart being changed. The kingdom has practical, physical consequences. Jesus often says that. You know, it's the good news to the poor. It has implications for poverty. It's the healing of the brokenhearted and the, the healing of the sick. People are healed. It's the restoration of justice and, 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 and it's, it's, it's good news to the marginalized. And Jesus often spent, in fact, most of his time he spent with the marginalized. People who were rejected by society. People who, who, who got a, the, the, the short end of the stick. People who were oppressed. Those were the people that Jesus spent most of his time with. Not exclusively, but most of his time. And he said the kingdom of God, and, and, and I mean, the whole idea that the kingdom is within you and that it's only a private, you know, personal matter, it's a Western modern idea. I mean, Jews in that time would never have thought that way. They knew the kingdom has practical, physical implications. And therefore, if Jesus had said, yes, just be a good citizen and pay your taxes, they would have said, ah, oh, you're blowing smoke, your kingdom message is nonsense, you don't, you don't even believe it yourself. And Jesus would have lost the people. So he seems to be between a rock and a hard place. If he says, no, don't pay, then he's going to suffer at the hands of the, of the Romans like Judas the Galilean did. If he says, yes, do pay, then he's going to lose the people and his movement's going to fall apart. So what does he do? What does he do? Jesus avoids... Three things, and I, I get this from, from a guy called Timothy Keller, and he says it so well, I'm just going to repeat it like that. He, he avoids three things. He avoids political simplicity, he avoids political complacency, and he avoids political primacy. So firstly, they ask him, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And then they, they restate the question, just so that, because they want a specific kind of answer. So they say, should we pay or shouldn't we? In other words, we want a yes or no answer. That's what they're looking for, a yes or no answer. And you know what? Jesus refuses to give them a yes or no answer. He avoids political simplicity. You see, when Jesus talks about our relationship to him, he's very simple. He's very plain. He's very straightforward. Anyone can understand it. He says, this is how it works. You need to repent. You need to obey. You need to be changed. Your heart needs to be renewed. You need to become part of my kingdom. You need to come under my rule. You need to take up your cross and follow me. I mean, he's very straightforward, very plain speech, simple speech when he talks about our relationship to him. But when he talks to our relationship with, about our relationship to government, to the state, he avoids simplicity. He doesn't just give a yes or no answer. And if Jesus doesn't give a yes or no answer on his position on government, then neither should we. we should, if he avoids political simplicity, then so should we. Here's the thing. Now, depending on, because by nature in politics you have to choose the lesser of evils, there's no perfect political party because there's no perfect human beings and political parties are just, you know, created by imperfect human beings. So they are going to be imperfect. And, and, and 
many of the uh, of the most of the human beings involved in political parties obviously you know are not even believers in in the lord so even worse you know so our fallen human nature comes out strong in stuff like political parties so because of its nature you have to choose the lesser of evils and therefore you're going to f- always find some things you agree with in any probably political party and some things you disagree with and what you're going to have to decide basically is What's more important to me? So yeah, what I'm trying to say is, I think you can be a Christian and vote for most parties, in South, or at least make a case to vote for most parties in South Africa, for example. Let's take an extreme example. Let's take the, the EFF. They are very strong against um, political injustice and inequality, uh, economic injustice and inequality. Is that a problem? Yes. Are they at least seen to be trying to address it, even if you don't agree with how they're doing it, are they trying to address it? Yes, they seem to be really serious about addressing it. So I can understand, I mean, the gospel also says, you know, economic inequality, injustice, and and so on, that's wrong. It should be addressed. We know that, don't we? I don't have to prove that to you from Scripture. I'm I'm assuming we, we all agree on that. So I can understand that someone who's a Christian and says, okay, but there is economic problems here, could, say, could use that as a reason to, to vote for them. I'm not saying I would vote for them, but what, what I am saying is you can make a case for that. If you're saying, okay, well, you know, good governance, you know, that's important. You need integrity of government, then you might choose a different party. If you say, you see, you know, it's, what, it's about what's important to you. So we should avoid political simplicity and say that if you're a Christian, you will vote for the Democrats, or you will vote for the Republicans, or you will vote for the ANC, or you will vote for the DA. I mean, even the ACDP, you know, and I support them, they're the most Christian party, but even them, there are some problems. Right? There is no perfect party. And therefore, we should avoid political simplicity, like Jesus does. It doesn't give a yes or no answer. Secondly, he avoids political complacency. Now, most politicians, you know, if you, if you ask them a question, a tough question, that is difficult to answer, what do they do? They avoid it. They talk around it, you know, and, and you just sort of roll your eyes and you get frustrated at them. So, so the answer leaves you frustrated. Guess what? Jesus' answer didn't leave his audience frustrated. It left them amazed. It left them marveling. So Jesus didn't avoid answering the question. And he didn't say, we must just like, um, you know, in, in Jesus' day, there were a group called the Essenes. They were a priestly group like the Sadducees, but they said, you know, these Sadducees, you know, the priestly group, they corrupt. They've bought the high priesthood. They're taking money from, from the Romans. They're not even the right priest, you know, to be the high priestly family. You know, we're going to go out into the desert. And they went to a place called Qumran. Have you ever heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? They were found in Qumran. They were written by these, this, this community of Essenes. And what their solution was, disengage, avoid. Don't take part in the system. If, you, if you're upset with the system, avoid the system. Just go off the grid completely. I'm not going to have a bank account anymore, you know, because it's all the system, you know. <laughs> I'm going to put all my cash into my, into my mattress. <laughs> Under my mattress, you know. I'm going I'm to go off the grid completely, you know. Going to go low-tech, you know. Going to live in the bush or something, you know. I'm going to avoid the system. And, and Jesus is saying, no. Jesus is saying, that's not the way I handle the problems and that's not the way I'm dealing with this problem 
avoid political complacency. You cannot disengage. You've got to remain engaged. Um, you, you, in fact, in, in a very real sense, I believe that if you become a Christian, it should actually make you more politically active. Isn't that so? Because if politics is a vehicle through which the injustices and the problems in society can be addressed, if it's the main vehicle, you know, sociological vehicle, then we should engage with it. Then we'd want to engage with it. Then, it, then that would be a primary way, important way, in which we can be salt and light in society. And if you look at Jesus' ministry, a lot of it was political engagement. I mean, we might not see it that way, but him proclaiming the kingdom of God that's a political statement. What was he crucified for? What did they write above his, his head on the cross? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He was crucified for claiming to be a king. And that put him in opposition to the other king, who is Caesar. Okay? The cleansing of the temple. I mean, we don't think of it that way, but it was a political statement. It wasn't just a, a, the, a, a, a religious statement Jesus was making. It wasn't just religious action. It was political action and activism. So the third thing is Jesus avoids political primacy. Jesus basically says that the solution, the main solution, is not political. He, he sort of answers the political question, should we pay taxes or not? He says, give to Caesar what, what is Caesar's. But but he also challenges it. Now, you don't see this coming through in, in, your, in your English translation. Jesus actually, they asked, they said, should we give taxes? And they use the Greek word, just the normal Greek word for give called didomi. And when Jesus answers, he doesn't say give to Caesar, didomi. He says apo didomi. He changes it. Apo means from. So he doesn't say give to Caesar what he Caesar's. He says give back to Caesar what he Caesar's. And he changes it. And then he adds to it, but give back to God what is God's. Can you see how he both, in some way, affirms what's on the coin and in other ways challenges what's on the coin? He engages politically. And he says, yeah, you know, it's Caesar's. It's actually, you know, very interesting what, what happens here. Because he says, give me a denarius. And there, there is another irony. They're asking Jesus about this tax. Is it right to pay this tax to Caesar, this head's tax? And Jesus has to ask. He doesn't have money. He doesn't even have a denarius. He has to ask them. He says, give me a denarius. Because he doesn't have one. But they have one. In other words, they they coming and asking this question as though they're challenging the system. But they have what it takes. You know, They're probably paying this tax in any case themselves. Can you see the hypocrisy there? Can you see the irony there? So he's asking for a denarius. He says, give me the denarius. He says, whose image, and literally, that's the word. It's the word, Greek word, icon, icon. Image is this on, on here. Whose inscription is it? And they say, Caesar's. And then he says, give back. And he changes the verb from give to give back. Give back or pay back to Caesar what is his and to God what is his. So what is he saying? He's saying, I mean, th- th- this coin belongs to Caesar. It has his image and his inscription. He, he minted it. It was Made in his mint. It literally, all the coins in the Roman Empire literally belong to Caesar. So he says, give back to Caesar what he Caesar's. His name is on it. His image is on it. Give it back to him. But you only give back to him what is his. You don't give him everything he asks. 
Because what is he asking for? He's not just asking for his money. With the money, and that's what that whole tax, that head tax was about. The money was just a symbol because he was asking for your complete, total allegiance. By giving that, he was wanting you to say, I'm totally giving my allegiance to Caesar. I'm totally submitting to his rule. I'm giving myself to him. And what Jesus is saying, don't do that. Only give back to him what carries his image. Now, just think about the word image. And this is what you need to get to get what Jesus is really saying. Where does that word come from? Why does Jesus use that word? In Genesis 1, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And he uses exactly the same Greek word that, that you find in the Greek translation of the Old Testament there, the word icon. In other words, what is Jesus saying? He says, the coin carries Caesar's image. Give back, pay back to Caesar what belongs to him, what comes from him. But you carry God's image. Give yourself to God. Can you see what he's saying? He says, Caesar's asking not only for, for his coin back, he's asking for you. But he says, but you carry God's image, not Caesar's image. Don't give yourself to Caesar. Give yourself to God. Can you see how he's both supporting in one sense the government, but also undermining it? He's doing both. He's not just giving a simple yes or no answer. Can you see how he's doing it? So, Tim Keller says this is the very first ever theory of limited government. The very first ever theory of limited government. All governments up to that time, they said um, either the ruler is God or the ruler is sanctioned by God and may not be challenged either way. Whether the ruler, just go up to the, to the next screen quickly. Um, the inscription, I just want to read the inscription for you. One, one on. There, there's a picture of a denarius. On the front, it says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus, and that's Caesar Augustus, Tiberius' father. Pontifex Maximus, on the back, back end, it has a picture of Tiberius' mother with, with the inscription Pontif- Pontifex Maximus. Now, in other words, he's saying Tiberius Caesar. Caesar is an emperor. In other words, a king over kings. A king of kings. So he's saying Tiberius, king of kings. Son of the god Augustus Caesar. Pontifex Maximus means high priest. Can you see what he's saying? (laughs) Tiberius Caesar, king of kings, son of the god Augustus, high priest. And yet Jesus is holding this coin in his hand. He's the king of kings. He's the true son of God. He's the ultimate high priest. He's holding this. And it doesn't, it's interesting. I find this very interesting. He doesn't throw this thing away and say, oh, cursed thing, you know, abomination. He's quite happy to engage with it, surprisingly. I mean, I find it a bit surprising. Um, and just like Caesar, everyone before him either claimed to be God or claimed to be sanctioned by God to rule and you could not challenge their rule. And here Jesus is challenging his rule and saying, yeah, pay the taxes. Don't, don't undermine. I mean, government is important and there are certain rights that it has. I mean, Romans 13 and places like that also affirm that same kind of thing. So on the one hand, he's, he's saying, no, government is important. It must be there. You must pay, your, you must pay ta- this tax. But on the other hand, he's also challenging it and saying, but don't give Caesar what he wants. 
He wants you. He wants your heart. It's not his to ask for. You cannot, you should not give him ultimate allegiance. In other words, it's the very first theory of limited government. Government should have limited powers according to Jesus. It does have powers, legitimate powers, but limited powers. (coughs) And when it oversteps those powers, we should, like Jesus, challenge what government is doing. I mean, and it's not, (coughs) it's not like Tiberius Caesar was the first or last to do this. I mean, all before him had done this. You know, rejected limited government and said, no, unlimited government. I mean, in a sense, even our political parties are doing this. I mean, didn't Jacob Zuma say the ANC will rule until Jesus comes? What was he saying? We as the ANC are legitimated by God to rule until he comes back. Only God himself can come and replace us. Only Jesus himself. Isn't that what he's saying? He's saying pretty much the same thing that Tiberius Caesar was saying and that Jesus was challenging. Can you see that? Now, like I said, there's this irony that Jesus um, has to ask them for denarius. And, and, and it says Jesus knowing their hypocrisy. On the one hand, he knew their hypocrisy because they were hypocritical. They, were, they weren't sincere in the question they were asking. They weren't sincere in their flattery, and they certainly weren't sincere in the question they were asking. But they were hypocritical in a different sense as well. And the fact that he had to ask them for denarius, and that they actually gave him, that they had a denarius to give him, shows this. <coughs> that they were hypocritical in that level as well. They were still taking part in the system they were claiming to challenge. And here's the thing. Every human revolution ultimately disappoints. Why? Why does it ultimately disappoint? Because ultimately, the revolutionaries who displace the oppressors end up becoming the oppressors. They might not oppress the same group, but they oppress someone. Because revolution is, (coughs) I'm standing up for other people, but it's other people I agree with that I'm standing up for. And I'm always standing up against someone I disagree with. So there's always someone that's going to be oppressed. Always. In human revolution, there's always someone being oppressed. And the oppressed always becomes the oppressor in a revolution. I mean, we see this in our own history, right? I mean, look at South African history. You had basically the British oppressing the Afrikaners, right? And the Afrikaners stood up and you had the National Party and they got into power and said, oh, we're liberating. I mean, we don't think of it that way, but in a sense, the National Party was also a liberation movement, like the ANC. Okay? But the National Party oppressed black South Africans. And the ANC rose up and said, this oppression is wrong. And they took power. And now the EFF is standing up and saying, can, can you see the, can you see the, the, I mean, revolution, every human revolution, every revolution in the worldly system doesn't work. It's like the, the, there was this band, The Who, you know, a couple of decades ago. They sang, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> right? That's the problem. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. I mean, do, do we honestly think that Julius Malema will be very much different from Jacob Zuma? Really? Probably not, right? 
just as an example. And I mean, if you look at Jacob Zuma, you know, he's the president of our country, and I don't want to diss him, but I mean, there are a lot of parallels between the way he's acting and the way Pierre Buita was acting, for crying out loud. Not exactly the same, but definite coincidences. Meet the new boss, same as the old boss. <laughs> Every human revolution disappoints. Why? Because even if you replace the old ruler, you replace him with yourself as the new ruler. And what you're saying, they are using their power to oppress. We're going to take that power, but we're also going to oppress with it. We're going to oppress those who disagree with us. So you're just replacing one form of oppression for another. What are you doing? You're just you're working within the system, the system of power, the system of the world. You're just moving the furniture around. You're not changing the system. You're working within the system. And what Jesus does is he undermines the system. He says, I'm going to work way outside the system. In other words, Jesus starts a revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. That turns revolution on its head. And here I want you to notice another irony. The irony of the contrast between the two kings mentioned here. We have Tiberius Caesar, the king of kings. Caesar means king of kings. Son of the divine Augustus. You know, a son of God. The high priest. And Jesus, the king of kings. The, the real son of God. The real high priest. The one has all the coins in the world. The other one has nothing. He has to ask for a coin. The one will kill to establish his rule. The other one will be killed to establish his rule. The one takes all the power and rules with it. The other one gives up all the power in order to rule. Can you see how Jesus revolutionizes revolution? Completely counterintuitive. We think if we want to change the system, we must grab power. Jesus gives up power to change the system. Because as long as you're grabbing power to change the system, you're working in the system. You're just moving around the furniture. What am I saying to you? I'm saying you're not a true revolutionary until you join Jesus' revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. You're not a true revolutionary. I mean, uh, you know, not to be disrespectful to the students on the street, they really think of themselves as revolutionaries. Jesus would say to them, guys, you don't really understand what revolution is. You're not undermining the system. You're perpetuating the system. You're not real revolutionaries. I will show you how to do a real revolution. I will show you how to really overthrow the system. And you won't need to use power to do it. You won't need to oppress to do it. You won't need to kill to do it. You won't need to use violence to do it. Because I give you a whole new system. Follow my example. Join the revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. And then you will join, really change the world. Because let's face it, 
Marx, Stalin, Lenin, Marx, and those guys in, in, the, in the Soviet Union, they started the revolution. And they, they were saying, that, no, we must help the worker class who are being oppressed. And they ended up, ironically, being some of the greatest oppressors in history. Stalin killed more than 20 million of his countrymen. 20 million. He's the second biggest mass murderer of all time. The only one who surpasses him is Mao Zedong, <laughs> who also led a revolution and killed probably more than 100 million of his own countrymen in China. We're against oppression, but ironically they end up perpetrating the greatest oppression and mass murder of all time. That kind of revolution doesn't work. It doesn't actually change the world. Where is the Soviet Union now? They realize that system doesn't work. I mean, Putin is trying to go back to it, <laughs> but it doesn't work. But look what Jesus has accomplished. And what Jesus has started, not by killing anyone, but by being killed, hasn't fizzled out. It's just increased. Where Mao Zedong's revolution didn't really change China that much, well, for the good. In the last couple of decades, China has been changing for the good. But you know why? It's because the church has been growing at an unprecedented rate. For long now, the spiritual birth rate in China has been has surpassed the natural birth rate. Okay, they only allow one child per couple, so maybe that's not such an <laughs> impressive stat. But the reality is the church has been growing exponentially. There are hundreds. I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but it's a few hundred million Christians in China now. And as the church has grown, China has prospered. Because it's the Jesus revolution that's really benefiting them, not the Maoist revolution. Think about someone like Martin Luther King Jr. Think where America was a couple of decades ago and where America is now. Okay, well, with Trump and Clinton, you sometimes wonder, you know, has it really changed that much? <laughs> but the reality is, <clears throat> it is a lot better. I mean, you don't have the Ku Klux Klan running around with sheets on their heads, you know, burning people and killing people, you know, not openly in any case. Um, and how did Martin Luther King do, do that? Not through violence. He said, the, the solution is not that people should become less religious. He said they should become more religious. Not that they need less of the gospel and more politics. They need more of the gospel and less politics. They just need to work out the gospel in their politics. That's what he said. And he said, we're not going to do it violently. I, I, I listened to his, and I, and I encourage you to do this, listen to his um, letter from Birmingham prison. One of the best political discourses I've ever read. And how he talks, you know, as a minister of the gospel to other white ministers of the gospel and says, listen here, let me just explain, because they were opposing him. And he says, let me just explain to you what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. Why we're doing it. He says, oppression anywhere is a threat To justice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And we come together. When we have these protests, we come together and we train people how to protest in a non-violent way. How to stand up for what they believe, but non-violently. And we talk to each other and we say, listen here, brother, sister, 
if it comes to blows, if you get attacked by a white policeman with a knopkiri, are you willing to receive those blows for the cause without retaliating? Without retaliating. And he says, only those who say, yes, I am, are allowed to take part in our protests because we are nonviolent. And guess what? Eventually, he turned his enemies into his friends by loving them. By loving them. By joining the Jesus revolution. The revolution that revolutionizes revolutions. I just want to read you a, a quick testimony. I don't know if I put it up there. I think I did. Yeah. It was by a, a student in, in Shofar Stellenbosch. She said, we really serve a great and almighty God. And I simply have to share my experience of two nights ago with you. As you are aware, it is an unstable time in Stellenbosch, at Stellenbosch University. Thursday evening I studied until about half past uh, 12. And when I entered my room, it smelled like petrol. I went to sniff at the other windows and concluded that I am just being paranoid. So I went to bed. A half hour later, I was teary and my heart was uneasy and I believe that is how the Holy Spirit spoke to me. I phoned campus security and asked them to come and check that everything was in order. Ten minutes later, there were several police vehicles, investigators, and an hour later, they found six bottles of petrol. Let's say six or sixty there. Six, yeah. That's right. Six bottles of petrol, matches and paper underneath a car at my res. It is impossible that I could have smelled this petrol all the way from my room window. God's love covers us and protects his children. It will show the power, uh, it just shows the power of prayer and that our God lives. This whole week everyone has been praying and our campus is so calm. We must keep on praying and put our trust in God. He is so good for us. So, what I'm trying to say to you, I'm, I hope I'm getting my message across. Just think of, in closing of this one thing. Jesus says, whose image is this on the coin? Give to Caesar what carries his image, and give to God what, what, what reflects his image. Us. To give ourselves to God. We reflect God's image. But, but even we don't reflect God's image perfectly. God's image has been tarnished in us. But there is one who reflects God's image perfectly. And that's the very Jesus who was saying this. And he was saying to us, give yourself back to God. Because he was intending to give himself to the Father in the ultimate way on the cross. As the image of God. And that's how he started his revolution. By dying on the cross. And that revolution has changed more lives than any other revolution ever has and ever will. Become a real revolutionary. Join the Jesus revolution. And actually change the world.